0: So there's gonna be some people that are like, uh, Missoula's too crowded now. Oh yeah. There always are. I'm gonna right? to move to Phillipsburg or Sealy Lake or sure. you know, and and that's that's always gonna be the case. You know, when what you have to decide as a community is well, who do you wanna be, right? What do you wanna compete on?
1: This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey, folks. Welcome back. Can you believe it? I'm actually here with Bryce Ward in person, in Studio 49, fully vaccinated. Here we go. Bryce, how are you feeling today?
0: Uh, Well, I mean, we're here in person. Like, this is great. Like, I don't think I've been in a room with you since June.
1: (laughs) It has been a long time. We dipped our toe back into in-person last June, and it was uh, quite premature, actually. It was
0: short-lived, although at the time, we didn't have cases here, so it was, uh, you know, it was a different form of feeling, oh, yeah, I guess this is kind of okay, but now it's like, yeah. I think it was like right in that lull
1: before the Memorial Day effect.
0: Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. You know, we were still kind of legit no cases. And what a quaint time oh, when so we thought nice.
1: covid was going to be easy
0: oh yeah yeah well, i guess everywhere else this is this is a great but yeah then it all went downhill and it's been a long dark winter but spring is coming the grass is turning green i saw some wildflowers outside today and you know I, the best time in missoula is coming and now i'll actually be able to go out and enjoy it indeed it's
1: happening uh so for the past couple editions of this incentives and instincts series we brought in some expert guests Today, we're going to turn our attention to a topic on which you, Bryce, are our resident expert, and that is housing in Montana. There's a lot happening with housing and lots of hot takes to go around on the topic. Bryce is going to help us separate signal from noise in order to understand what's actually going on. So, Bryce, you sort of gave me a really useful framework for thinking about housing I mean, to kick us off, like, w- what's happening with housing prices in, Mo- in in Montana and in Western Montana in particular?
0: Well, housing prices everywhere, not just Western Montana. I mean, everywhere has seen enormous surges uh, over the past year. And I can remember giving talks early in COVID. I actually gave a talk to, I think of some realtors group, like, in March. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know, guys, like, you know, big recession's going to hit. I don't know what that's going to do to housing. And sure. they were like, well, it seems okay so far. And they were right, and my concerns were clearly not warranted. Uh, we have gone through just an explosion in terms of housing prices, right? So, uh, you know, different industries measure different stuff. But, you know, Montana statewide in 2020 was up 15.5%. And those are year over, you know, so the, the way that, that it's called the, the FHFA housing price index. And what they do, so the Federal Housing Finance Agency, you know, they get lots of mortgages. Mm -hmm. So they get to see what uh, the same house sells for or appraises for if you're getting a refi Mm -hmm. over time. So they're basically, instead of just looking at what the median sales price is, which can get get screwed up by composition of what houses are actually being listed or sold, they're just like, look, here's the same house that's being sold over time. And so they can look at that over time and tell us, oh, well, that's what, You know, that's the the actual rise in the tide. Sure, same house compared to the same Same house house over time. time. Actual transactions. Actual transactions, actual sales prices. And so that 15.5, that's purchases in Montana. Um, That's the second highest in the country. Idaho was faster at 21%, something insane like that. Yeah. But everywhere, like, I mean, the national median or national average was 10.5, Jeez, right? So that tells us that there's something nationally happening yep. that's driving at least two thirds of what we saw in Montana. But Montana is different for at least that extra third, that mm-hmm. extra 5%. And so, you know, there's, it's worth kind of unpacking both. These are the national forces, the kind of full COVID forces that are applying everywhere. And then what specific is, you know, what's unique about Montana that's driving that extra piece?
1: Well, let's take the national piece first, like broadly. I mean, 10% is a big number for housing. It actually trails some of the capital markets. The capital markets and other asset classes have had expansive growth in the past 12 months as well. How do you kind of think about housing relative to other asset classes at the moment?
0: Okay, so if you look, actually this interesting paper came out a year or so ago, which looked at A hundred years of returns to different assets across the entire globe. Okay. And what they actually find is that housing and the stock market actually rise pretty much together. I mean, they don't always go together. They're not correlated in terms of each quarter they're rising the same amount. But if you look across the span of a hundred years... Uh, the rate of return is nine percent for both. So about the same performance you know, level, yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, over the, at least the twentieth century, they were they kind of wow. grew the same. And you know, obviously, housing you have to measure both not just the appreciation in house price but also like the imputed rent that you might get from mm-hmm. who imagined renting your house out all that kind of stuff. But um, so it's a combination of those things. But so that's, you know, usually you think of them as, yeah, they kind of go together. But, you know, obviously they're driven by slightly different forces. And so housing, the demand nationally is it's a function of two things. So first is just interest rates. Mm-hmm. You know, when you lose a whole percentage point off of mortgage rates, people can afford to buy a whole lot more house, right. Right? right? You know, in fact, if you just said, okay, well, let's say I wanted to buy the median house in Montana in 2019. You know, I think if I remember correctly... If you wanted to buy that house at the interest rates that were prevalent in 2019, the end of 2019, your principal interest, so setting aside insurance and property taxes taxes and and all that. that. The other stuff that's in your mortgage payment. But like you just said, well, what am I paying the bank? I think it was like about $1,450 to buy the median house. Mm -hmm. So if I wanted to keep my mortgage payment the same at the interest rates that were prevalent at the end of 2020, so just keep paying $1,450 and Principal interest, I could afford a house that was 15% more. Wow. That's how much a percentage point yep. of interest matters. And in fact, when we look at housing in Montana over the long haul, right, going back to 1990, right? If you just look at the rise in housing prices, people are like, man, they're just, you know, housing prices in 1990. So the median house in 1990, it cost about $116,000. Okay. Okay. You know, the median home. In 2019, before the 15% increase was 312. Wow. Right, so there's a huge increase, right? But a huge amount of that increase is just interest rates, right? Because interest rates in 1990 right. were 10%, 10%, 12%. I don't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. right? But So if you just said, look, what's the median household as a share of their income, if they're just making that principal and interest payment, they're actually paying less today than they paid in 1990 in terms of their you know, assuming a 30-year fixed rate 80-20 mortgage, right? So now their down payment, if they're making 20%, that's huge, right? So, so it's, it's weird to think about what's actually driving the increase, you know, in terms of the lack of affordability. It's really easy to say, well, the ratio of median house price to median income has skyrocketed. Right. Um, and it really is, if you just look at that measure of affordability, Montana's the same as big cities, right? You know, it's Missoula and Bozeman are no different than King County. So income is low. Housing prices are high relative to the, that income. But if you're saying, well, what am I paying in terms of my mortgage? You know, you're actually, you know, your mortgage payment, you know, that principal interest piece, again, setting aside the property tax component. For the median house it's just the same share of income as it used to be
1: so i'm trying to kind of get my my head around this and I, I might not be even asking the question in the right way but if you can attribute a large share of that increase in housing prices to this interest rate effect is it real or is it sort of like a bubble effect like if these assets actually appreciated in value or are we just kind of playing with funny money and all playing you know, the same game at the same time?
0: Depends on how much interest rates move. Right, right, right. So if you had a real big spike in interest rates, then yeah, you'd see a real big decline in asset values, mm-hmm. right? You know, And that's the stock market as well, right? This is the concern about people are constantly raising about stock market values is because the value of a business is just the stream of profits divided by a discount rate, right. which is... right fundamentally a function of the interest rate. So, you know, these things all move together. This is why people care about when the Fed moves interest rates, mm-hmm. right? Now, typically we don't think of it, you know, we've gotten used to this low interest rate and not a huge amount of of movement. But, you know, the risk of, you know, substantial increase in inflation means that you're going to see a substantial change in interest rates and that would then ripple through all of these markets. So, you know, it's on the Fed and the rest of policymakers to kind of make sure that, you know, it's fine for interest rates to rise as long as they rise kind of slowly. um, Then you won't see a big, you just won't see as much appreciation. You'll just see kind of slower, which is normal, right? I mean, if you look at year over year changes in housing markets, Mm -hmm. they're very spiky, right? It's just like, you know, sometimes it's faster than inflation. Sometimes it's not really much faster than inflation. It kind of just moves around. And so we had a big spike. And the question is, is that spike going to follow by a crash or just kind of oh, it's just going to rise with inflation for a few years and kind of work off the, you know, the, the excess effect. And it's worth noting that the current you know, appreciation that we're seeing isn't only a function of interest rates. It's also a function of the fact that we don't have very many houses on the market. Right, supply. So
1: talk about supply, inventory, as realtors call it. Like, well, how, does that, how does that side of it work?
0: Well, obviously, if, they, if you can't find a house, you know, say, I, I want to buy a house. And you go and there's like none for sale, none for sale. Well, that means that everybody now starts bidding for the same house and they bid up the price. And that's kind of what we're seeing, right? We have nationally half as many houses on the market as normal. And in a lot of markets, it's less than that. And is that
1: all attributable to COVID? Like, why is it? Do we have like a building shortage or like what's happening there?
0: So, you know, uh, it, the reason why it's the dip from normal, because it did fall with COVID, right? I mean, it's been low for a while, but sure. like, you know, it, we're talking about half of where it was a year ago. So that's a COVID effect and that's basically threefold, right? So you've got some amount of people who would normally age out of their house and move into some form of retirement, assisted living, nursing home facility. Well, I can imagine that there's been a little bit less of that given mm-hmm. that COVID in nursing homes. Yeah, became, they mix so well. They were not real great together.
1: Or they mix particularly well, depending on your perspective. If you're the virus, if you're the virus
0: thinks it's great. But, you know, so there's that. And then we've also had a bunch of policies that have made it so that you can't foreclose, you can't evict. Um, That's true. You know, I, I've seen estimates that suggest that maybe 40% of the, of the decline, so almost half, is just that effect.
1: Really? And would those people otherwise have been displaced? They from They would have home? been
0: displaced, and so, but you know, in terms of you know, but you know, in terms of what's driving sure. the increase in, in you know, the reduction in supply, which then gets mirrored into, um, you know, prices. So, you know, so you have that supply side effect, and then you know, now people are trying to build as fast as they can, but now we've got price interruptions in that market. So right. lumber price index is up fifty percent. I I know a number of builders there in my family and so I've heard horror stories It's just like you know something that used to cost 7 dollars now costs 56. Wow. And that's a mix of COVID interruptions in the supply chain mm-hmm. that haven't been worked through yet, right? So factories that shut down because of COVID and trying to catch up. And they are trying to catch up, you know, and so they but you know they're just kind of but there also is just there is a true demand surge because now you've got both everybody stuck at home is like I need to remodel this house, right? You know, or I need different space because I'm working at home now or sure. whatever it is. Like I I live that as well, right? Uh, although I'm rethinking certain projects now that I'm like, I don't need to do this right now. <laughs> Why am I paying 50% more for things? Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, so there's been a big surge in in demand and, you know, that's now making it actually harder for the builders to that are trying to build because it's hard to quote a price, Yep, Because the market's moving between your the, quote and execution. Yeah, you're just, you know, if I'm I'm the builder, I'm not taking on this risk that the, the inflation in materials is just going to kill my profit margin. Right. So maybe I'll just won't build, right? I'll just wait because I'm not building for a charity, right? Like while well, we collectively want them to build the house to kind of help deal with this surge – so, you know, those are all kind of what's kind of lurking around. And then obviously then there's just the COVID-related demand. Well, I guess there's also there also is a set of people who just aren't selling because of COVID. I don't want to move, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, particularly last year, right? Like, I, you know, I'm locked down. What, what, I don't want to, like, have a bunch of people come through my house and I don't want to have, like, you know – to you know, move or you know, then and then they're also looking at and they're saying, well, they're looking at the market, saying there's nothing available, so where am I even going to move to? And so we're kind of in a bad cycle.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that moving dimension there, because you know some people, yes, they're they're like moving during COVID is sort of a pain. I can't look at houses, I can't get around, can't move, and it's just like harder to do. Yet one of the popular narratives. Is that people are, are are moving en masse from cities to places like Montana? So, you know, what's exactly happening there? What do we know about people's m- moving habits or what's happening with the mobility right now?
0: It's hard. Yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of people trying to squint at not very good data that isn't well designed for this, right? So, there's some people who have looked at cell phones. Sure. Right? Okay. And it's like, well, you used to kind of spend all your time here, and now you're spending all your time here. And so we're inferring that you moved from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's people who've been looking at address changes filed with the Postal Service. But, you know, all of these data sets have some limitations in terms of, you know, actually tracking migrants. Sure. And so we have to kind of wait for both the census so we don't know and yet. the IRS to kind of tell us they're the better sources. Well, we know, obviously, because we've seen enough in housing markets Uh to know that there is a real effect of people leaving central cities and moving to exurbs and high amenity communities further afield. Mm -hmm. That's certainly true. How much is it? How big is it? How much of a change is it from what we're normally seeing? Still, I, I don't feel comfortable like with that. Now, obviously, anecdotally, I have new neighbors that are from not here. Yep. So, you know, I, I, I certainly can say, yeah, I, I've seen the evidence that that's true. And certainly, obviously, realtors are, uh, you know, we've seen lots of stories in the Washington Post or whatever it is that they're interviewing Montana real estate, real estate agents about the boom of people coming here. So, you know, there's certainly you don't get a 15.5 percent increase in year over year housing price increase from just people moving in town yes. uh, based on low interest rates and lack of supply. Mm-hmm. There's definitely something happening that's people moving from elsewhere. So that certainly is a piece of this story. Um, the question is, is how long, is, you know, is this a temporary blip? Is this a one-time thing? Is this, a, or is this the, the trickle before a flood?
1: And so when we talk, think about affordability, I mean, relative to other places, you know, there's been this nationwide rise Montana is, has risen at a, at a faster rate.
0: So, is, is Montana affordable? Like, how do we even define affordable? Um, so, we, housing economists, we have three different definitions, and all of them have their trade offs. So, there's not like one, right? So, first you say, well, look, relative to someplace else, is Montana cheap? Right. And obviously, to the extent that the big central cities have seen price. Or slower price appreciation because they still have the interest rate effects as well. But you know, if, if Montana surges, then some of that affordability gap goes away. And we were already more expensive than a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used at least before this surge, and I haven't. We haven't seen the full data for 2020 yet, so I don't know exactly where we're going to end up. But you know, but we used to be kind of well. We're certainly cheaper than coastal big cities, but most places in Montana were more expensive than other smaller places or the South, Mm -hmm. Um, at least in terms of buying a house. rents are actually different, right? So rent has always been, it's always been weird to me, right? Like, so if you look at these high amenity places in the West, Mountain West, Pacific Northwest, they have high home values relative to rents. Whereas you go to the South where home values are low, rents actually are higher and i never have fully understood it but clearly it's a, some sort of amenity story my guess is that it's just like well i don't want to rent in montana i want to own in montana right i'm trying to buy a piece of so it's kind know, of cultural variables you're kind of yeah exp- explaining. You, know, you know there's something there's something to it you know it very shows it very clearly you know people who have seen me present on this i show a little map which is like the ratio of value to rent. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's all these dark blue places that are basically like, oh, it's the Rocky Mountains and the Cascades. (laughs) And then you go down into Florida and Georgia and it's just reversed. Um, So, but, you know, I mean, so certainly, you know, so there's just a look up. I'm just looking around and saying, well, I, I can live wherever I want. What's cheaper? Right. So that's one set of people who they just care about the relative price um, and then obviously, what are you getting for that? The amenities that come along with it. Um, you know, these are our footloose people. You know, and that's certainly part of, you know, and that's, I guess, that's part of why I think Montana has a very high share of people who don't earn their living here. Um, yes. You know, we have in, you know, like Gallatin County, Missoula County, Flathead County, all are in the top 10% of counties in terms of the share of income that's not from wages. And Montana's like I think third in terms of states.
1: Okay. So let's explain that a little bit. So when you say income not from wages, meaning investment income or their rent to property elsewhere, like what could it be you're a small business owner? Like
0: how do we So Yeah, that's that's part of it. So it's always it's always imperfect, right? So yeah. we have you know, we have one from the IRS that's based on what you file in terms of AGI, and then one from the Bureau of Economic Analysis in terms of personal income. One includes capital gains, which is the IRS income, and the other is just, is just dividends, interest, and rent. Okay. Um, We're deep in the weeds here, man. Yeah. But basically, the point is, is that you know the, the easy way to think about it is some people make their money from working, right? I am a wage laborer, mm-hmm. right? I go to work and somebody gives me a sure. check, right? And historically, almost all people worked in the town that they lived in, Right. And so the paycheck that you got depended on where you lived. Mm-hmm. And so normally, in a normal in a in a world in which there's literally no footloose people, then all of all income is just based on what's coming from the community, and then housing prices are just a function of what.
1: Sure, it's relatively closed system.
0: Yeah, it's a closed system, and it's based on the the strength of your economy for generating sure. income. As the share of people who don't earn their income from their local job grows mm-hmm. well now the housing market is no longer entirely local it's in some sense national right because you have people who are like i can live wherever i want yeah. and historically this was just like i have money right you know i'm retired and i have a the classic pension. trust funder right I have a trust fund i'm just a capitalist great well where do where do people who can live wherever they want want to live sure malibu Yeah. High amenities. Go find me the best amenities and that's where you'll find large concentrations of people who make their income not from local wages. And so because Montana has a high share of that, that means that our, that drives that housing price effect, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's like, well, now instead of just having the people who are living and working in Montana, trying to buy their house in Montana, you've got a bunch of people who can live wherever they want, and they're competing for the same houses in the same places, right? Right. Now we add to that, and it used to be a small share of workers who can work wherever they want, right? And that's kind of what COVID has maybe possibly changed. Sure,
1: and we'll we'll come to that in a moment.
0: Is that, you know, that share of people is now growing as well. But you have this kind of, you know, You know, when we kind of normally think about a housing market, you're like, oh, these things all go together, right? There's the labor market, there's the housing market, and then there's just kind of those people are kind of cycling through. And then as wages go up in an area, it becomes more attractive, and that will drive housing prices. That's this kind of standard, simple story. But It's not so simple. It's not so simple when you have a large share of people who can live wherever they want. And you know historically that was retirees and trust funders and you know now we're potentially adding in workers as well.
1: And you said I couldn't remember the three counties. I think it was both or Gallatin County, Missoula County, and and and
0: yeah, Flathead. flathead. It's not. It's not just them. To be honest. enormous shares of Montana are in the top 10 percent I don't remember top ten percent right, nationally? nationally in okay. all, of all, amongst all counties in terms of the share of income that is coming from non-local non-wages hey, we, do we know why that is because it's a desirable place to live place so to live. you know some people with
1: just uh deep pockets want to live here or I mean you've said this to me before like one of the it's it's gotten better over the last 10 years but historically there haven't been you know, a lot of well-paid jobs in a city like Missoula. So a lot of people import their job. And so, and we can kind of get to like, has that happened on a grand scale
0: with COVID or not? We don't really know. Yeah. So it's really just a question of, we. so we know what's happened during COVID. Sure. What we don't know is what's going to happen after COVID. Right, right. right? And so, but yeah, so in terms of demand, right? So we have, okay, so we had the interest rate story.
1: Inventory story. Have, that's a
0: supply side story. We and you know then we have, okay, well, where do people want to live? Yeah. Right? And historically, most of your local housing market was a function of your local job market. Mm-hmm. And Montana, over the particularly past 25 years, has just seen more and more of its housing market be claimed by people who are not tied to the local job market. So even pre-COVID, Montana was in the top five in terms of share of people who worked from home. Right? Okay. You know, we had, I want to say 8% of...
1: Work from home, meaning they don't go to an office, right? They yeah. dislocated
0: from their employer. No, we have very poor data on work from home. Okay. But like the the best measure we had was a census question on the American Community Survey, which was, where did you work last week? Okay. Right? And so people who said, I worked last week from home, right? And obviously lots of people who work from home spend part of their time sure. on the road or in an office or wherever. So we're missing some of that. But when we look at that data, right, you know, it was basically, it's like it's Montana, Oregon, Colorado. Um, these are the places that lead the nation or led the nation pre COVID work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, so we already had more of that. We also have a higher share of second homes, you know, so to the extent that, you know, somebody who lives in Montana, uh, has to compete for the same house with somebody who summers in montana or winters in montana or does whatever you know all of that stuff is part of montana's housing market that we have to kind of work through in terms of trying to understand where is demand coming from and then yeah what's what's lurking right now on the demand side is just how much more of that are we gonna see in a post-covid world we saw a bunch of it during COVID, but is that was it a mistake? Are you going to have a bunch of people that are like, whoops, I thought this was permanent and then they're going to have to leave? Yeah. Uh, is this, you know, did we just see the set of people who are kind of already at the margin and kind of they're going to be able to do it long term? Or is there going to be a flood coming in the future as, you know, cities die and everybody starts working remotely? And it's like, well, why do I want to even live in a city anymore when I want to spend the time when I'm not working skiing and mountain biking and all that kind of stuff and that's the question that everybody's grappling with and obviously it's the future and so we don't know of course but you know there's very strong opinions i think mm-hmm. uh from various people on what will hold
1: so i mean I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll offer up some of our thoughts on that topic um in a moment but before we get there i just want to kind of you hear so much particularly in, in missoula and western montana about affordable housing and you know Young folks, graduates from the University of Montana, College of Business, etc., or, or any graduate getting a job at like the Luminads and Submittables and ATGs and some of the local companies that are that are employing a lot of our graduates. Yet I hear from these students like, hey, it's really hard to afford a home. And you mentioned that rents are relatively low to a starter home mortgage payment. How do you kind of think about the affordability of a particular community, and then what can a community actually do about it? What sort of levers do we have that that are useful?
0: Yes, we kind of – I lost my thread on definitions of affordability. So we start by comparing across, and that's when you start worrying about the footloose people. But then there's also just relative to income. Uh, That's the second measure. And that's where it gets a little complicated. That's where the interest rate piece comes – makes it weird, right? Because mm-hmm. if you just look at the ratio of the the value of a home to median income, it looks really bad, but then you say, well, wait a second, how much of that is just interest rates? Sure. But there is this, you know, the the challenge is that yeah, the your down payment is now a you know, it used to be like maybe half of a median household income and now it's almost 2 years of median household income, right? right? So that's the barrier. So when we talk about trying to move people from renting into home ownership, In some sense, it's that down payment barrier that has that, you know, that because that's what's growing with the market overall Mm -hmm. when interest rates are driving some of this. Right. And so that barrier is real. And certainly when you're seeing 15, 20 percent, you know, and 15.5, that's statewide. Yeah. You know, my best guess for Missoula is 20. Wow. uh, Flathead's probably 20 and parts of Gallatin are probably 20. And some places are even almost 30 Depending on the zip code, mm-hmm. and so you know, and so yeah, there's definitely you know that's just driving up that down payment uh, if you're trying to buy with a mortgage, I and mean, that's a huge barrier. So th- certainly, if you're trying to buy a house and you're trying to live on a Montana income, that's there's definitely a barrier there.
1: A new angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is University of Montana President Seth Bodner, and you're
0: listening to A New Angle. Now, the good news is that rent as a share of income hasn't changed that much. So basically, if you look at rent in Montana, it's largely grown with income, right? So we don't have a huge we haven't seen a huge increase in the share of people who are rent burdened now obviously and in absolute terms you know we have arbitrarily selected 30% of your income yeah. as the level of rent burden Right. you know there's a large share of people who are rent burdened but the share of people who are rent burdened at least pre covid um we haven't got the data post covid yet in Montana was actually slightly less than national average, and definitely less than other parts of the West.
1: Right, and that makes sense given our rents are, are yeah, lower.
0: You know, so that's the thing. You know. And so I mean, that's probably changed a little bit because there's no vacancies right now in, yeah. in Montana and anywhere, right? Because and so that's certainly driving up rents. And so we may have lost some of that edge. Um, we'll see where we where we get when we get the the new American Community Survey data, which is where I rely on for rent. But, you know, certainly some of the evidence I've seen so far suggests that there's definitely things happening in the rental market here as well. And so we'll see where things kind of land post-COVID, but they probably haven't changed enough to kind of fully erase that story, right? So on, on the second definition of affordability relative to income, it's still kind of okay if you're, you know, again, in absolute terms, it's bad because there's still plenty of people who are rent burdened. But in relative terms, the share of people who are rent burdened in Montana is about typical or even slightly less than typical. Mm-hmm. So the third definition of affordability is one that only housing economists use, uh, which is how does it, how much does this house cost relative to what it costs to actually build? Okay, right? Yeah, you know. And basically, what that's saying is, well, how much is because if it, it costs say whatever a house is six hundred thousand dollars in the market. But the actual structure, if you were to go out and rebuild it, is only like two hundred thousand. That means the land that's sitting under your house sure. is you know, a lot of what's driving. You know, now right now with materials cost, there's actually really cost of construction things, so it's hard to do this calculation. But somebody did a calculation for several areas a few years ago, and Missoula was, you know, certainly certain parts of Missoula, mm-hmm. Missoula County, in fact, uh, the Swan Valley. The land that sits under houses in the Swan Valley is some of the most expensive land in the country.
1: Interesting. Um, which yeah. is not
0: surprising if you've ever been to the yeah, Swan Valley. I probably yeah, shouldn't yeah. even talk about it because I don't <laughs> want people to know about it. But, but you know, and, but same Rattlesnake University, like, you know, the land that sits under yeah, those houses is really expensive. And that tells us that, well, why? Right, because in a, in a, in a normal sense, what we expect to happen, in fact, what actually maximizes the value of the land is to densify on that land. Right, is to put more houses on that land, right? Cuz you know, that's what you, that's why you see skyscrapers in central cities. Why? Well, the land is really expensive. So what do I want to do? I want to use every square inch of that land right. as Extract much as I as can. much
1: rent from that, you know, and so I asset. build a big
0: giant tower yep. on it. And so you know, your next question was, well, what do you do? Right? Well, within a market context, well, if demand is high, I have to deal with supply, mm-hmm. right? And so I got to build more build houses. more houses. And obviously building more houses is very unpopular because I only have two options. I can build more densely, right? So I can take my single family house on a half acre. Sure,
1: change zoning or build and, more dense structures, and, you know, multi-unit, etc., and,
0: and turn it into a duplex or a triplex right. or a fourplex right. or whatever it is. Don't um,
1: tend to like those sorts of things. And
0: for reasons that... I'm not sure I really understand. I mean, I sort of understand it, but certainly not to the extent that what we do. Uh, You know, there's a densification. You know, the the standard phrase is, "Will you lose the neighborhood character. Mm -hmm. The neighborhood changes from what it was in my mind and what I want it to always be. So if I don't densify, I can sprawl. That's my other option, right? As I just kind of move further and further outside and go gobble up some empty land now that's harder in certain parts of Montana, right? And Missoula is a valley. <laughs> I can't. I can only sprawl so far, right? Um, and you know, and before, I mean, I can sprawl. I can sprawl down the Bitterroot, but like, like I'm going down one highway, and like the commute is going to go up, sure. you know really long, and you know, it's already a, a disaster trying to drive out the Bitterroot at five o'clock, as it is. You know, now Bozeman's different. Bozeman's only hemmed in on one side by mountains, right? right. It it can sprawl to Three Forks, right? It's got, you know. 30, and it pretty, pretty much is it, yeah it's got 30 40 miles of basically just flat land to kind of yep. keep gobbling up but I mean, you know that's what you see in a lot of lots large parts of the south right is they just kind of just keep going out as opposed to going up mm-hmm. but of course sprawl isn't always desirable particularly in places where people value like you know the wilderness and sure uh, and no well in you know your whole fire it look you start creating other risks, you know, environmental risks, fire mm-hmm. risks, all sorts of other things. So And so if you don't densify, you don't sprawl. And the only other option is to let prices rise and tell people to go away. So, you know, there's no, those are your options in a market context. Now there's always aftermarket stuff in terms of, well, we can subsidize this. Policy or, you and know, so forth. But, you know, obviously yeah. the cost of, of doing subsidized housing moves in complete proportion with, Housing prices. So, sure. if your solution to housing prices is to just keep trying to subsidize, but you don't build any more houses, um, and so you don't keep that market rate going down, the, the size of the subsidy just keeps growing and growing and growing. Yeah. So, to me, that's always second order. It's not to say that you're always going to have you know people who are at the very tail of the income distribution who are probably going to need support to buy market rate housing or to afford housing at some rate. But we want to keep that share small by providing market rate housing to as many people as we can, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, you have to choose amongst those three choices, which is, look, all of them have are undesirable. Lose neighborhood character, sprawl, let prices rise and tell people to go away. None of those are good. But this is what policymakers have to ultimately do and why you need to have good social capital in a community so that you can have the difficult conversation about, where to draw the line in terms of trade-offs, right? When do we start densifying? When do we make multifamily housing legal and where and how much? And, you know, how do we – there's going to be winners and losers from all of this stuff. So you've got to figure out how to make the hard choice because a lot of what's happened, I guess, over my whole life is we said, well, we don't want to make the hard choice. Sure. And when you don't make the hard choice, the default is just the third. Prices go up. Mm-hmm. You tell people to go away. Right? right. That's 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 been kind of the policy in much of the Pacific Coast, the Mountain West, and the Northeast. Yeah. It, you know, uh, other places have just said, "Well, we're just going to let people build," and that's the default policy. And so, sprawl became the default policy. Very few places have done what I think makes the most sense, which is just densification.
1: Right. Right. And try to have harder
0: conversations about those variables, right? And, and actually estimate it, right? So I wrote a paper 10 years ago, um, Journal of Urban Economics, people can go look it up, right? Where we basically argued that there's a simple equation that, you know, that, you know so if you're a property tax community like Missoula, like there's, an equi- there's actually a simple equation that governs when do you maximize the value of your land, right? And that's when, you know, you, you equate the negative effect of density with, you know, how much density you have, right? You basically, but you need to actually know, so how much does the market really not like densification, hmm. right? And what we estimated, we had a sample of a bunch of communities in Eastern Massachusetts, and we're basically, it doesn't seem like the market cares. Right. You know, so that's that's why I say I don't think
1: when you say the market cares, meaning like I'm against density because I think it will decrease my home home value, value. like it'll ruin my real estate value.
0: And it won't is, you know, well, I don't think it will. Sure. And we're going to learn a lot because Minneapolis legalized uh, duplexes, triplexes and fourplexes in all places where they do single family. Oregon has done something similar and they're still implementing. So it hasn't. We haven't gotten yeah, to the do post yet. yet, Yeah, but we're going to learn a lot. Sure. Right? We're going to learn a lot about how much does, you know, and I think uh, part of the problem I think people have with density is they don't understand the time scale at, along which it happens, right? They think, oh, if I allow multifamily housing, people are just going to start bulldozing my neighbor's houses and put up things. And that's their, usually got to wait till the house becomes something that you want to tear down anyway. Right. And then you put in the duplex or the triplex or whatever it is. And so, and, you know, the rate at which that happens i think is a lot slower than what people imagine and so the change in your neighborhood character yeah if you come back 50 years from now it's going to look different but it's a 50 year or it's a decade long it's decades long sure. to get to the change in the character and at that at that pace you keep up with it right you know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, well, yeah, they built some more houses. And, yeah, there's some more people here. And you're going to complain. Look, people are going to complain. It's not, you know, look, you're, there's going to be more traffic on the road. There's going to be more people at the trail. Oh, yeah. Um, But, you know, that stuff has already been happening. Like, we've seen enormous growth in all parts of Montana, most parts of Montana, certainly in Missoula and Bozeman and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's a rate at which you can grow where, yeah, you're going to notice. But you're not going to – it's not going to be – for the vast majority of people, it is still within the toleration bounds, right? So there's going to be some people that are like, Ugh, Missoula's too crowded now. Oh, yeah. There always are. I'm going right. to move to Phillipsburg or Sealy Lake or, sure. you know, and, and that's that's always going to be the case. You know, and what you have to decide as a community is, well, who do you want to be, right? What do you want to compete on? And, you know, some places have to compete on, yeah, we want to be, we want to grow, and if you want to grow, then you got to keep housing prices in a range where people want to live here. And, you know, that requires figuring out how to actually build houses. Right. So that's
1: there a lot there, Bryce. But I, I mean, I, my head's spinning a little bit. It's uh, It's fun to get you like right in your wheelhouse. And I appreciate it. But as we kind of close... I want to turn our attention to you know where we think the dust settles on some of this stuff. Like what happens post COVID? There's a lot of you know a lot of hot takes about like oh yeah you know Montana's been ruined by all these you know, Zoom workers that are moved in or taken over. Um, you know you're a little bit skeptical on on uh, the durability of this remote working effect if if one exists. You know, how are you thinking about it?
0: Yeah, so. It's really easy to make work from home work when everybody's working from home. Exactly, and there's a, a you know literal like policies that are you are not allowed to go into the office. That's that's it's really easy. Like it's not easy, you know, but it's certainly easier, right, to maintain that as an equilibrium and kind of be like, well, this is my only option. We're gonna make this work, and we're gonna do everything we can to make this work, and all that kind of stuff. Now. I actually have concerns, even if you were forced into this for a long term, you would eventually start seeing losses. In productivity? Yeah. Just because, you know, look, it's easy to ignore the social capital and trust and all that kind of stuff that, you know, we've been living on for the last year. Mm -hmm. I, without real interventions, like purposeful interventions that I have no, I know of nobody who has done, social capital depreciates. Yeah. And it's easy to, you know, we're I, I'm certainly feeling my social capital depreciate with people that I'm only interacting with. It's 30%. coming back in this session, Bryce. That's right. we no, it. no, like It's good practice. But, you know, but, like, certainly there's people that I work with that are only on Zoom that I used to see 100%. face-to-face. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, eh, you know, they're kind of in the back of my mind, and there's all sorts of other things that are kind of happening. And, you know, this is, it's hard to build relationships and trust without shared experience. Mm-hmm. And... Maybe some people are better at doing purposeful Zooms that create shared experience that allow us to keep that going. But my guess is that most people are just lazy and they're just using Zoom to do the meeting that they need to do and move on.
1: Yeah. And Um, nobody wants more Zoom right now.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, so I don't think even if we were forced into this, we would start seeing a lot more people be like, this doesn't work. Right. But that's in a world in which everybody's forced to do it. Sure. Now we're going to say, well, look, there's some people are you don't have to do it anymore. You can you can go back to the office. And my my suspicion is is that once people go back to the office, it's really hard to within the same organization have some people at home and some people in the office. Mm-hmm. And that the people in the office, particularly if the boss is in the office, right, are going to find significant advantages in terms of promotion opportunities or just all the other stuff that comes from face to serendipitous face to face contact. That, you know, it's easy to forget if you don't care about it or if you haven't been dealing with it. But, like, a lot of opportunities for advancement come from random conversations with people that you bump into uh either in the office or on the street outside mm-hmm. the office and all that kind of stuff. And people who try and, you know, there's certain people who will be able to kind of do this more long term, right? They're not trying to advance. They have a certain... You know, so my guess, my my prediction for the future is that you're going to see separation, right? So there's going to be a set of workers who, yeah, they are output oriented. They don't need to be monitored. Yeah, um, they can learn on their own. They're basically, all the people who've already were working at home. You know, there's just going to be a larger set of them because yeah. they're going to be able to say, oh, like, I already did it. I'm, you know me, I know you. So great, go live wherever you want, right? But if you're somebody who's trying to climb. A ladder. So you know, you're young and starting out. You're trying to advance. Uh, your output is hard to observe. Um, so I need to actually monitor your inputs. The boss has got to be actually looking at you and saying, oh, what are you doing? It's going to be a lot harder for those people to survive in a fully virtual environment. And so you're going to see a lot of pressure for them to come back. Now, the question is, is how much power do the workers have to kind of push this away? But right. my guess is what you're going to end up with is you'll have a set of companies that are largely in the office. I mean, I think you're always going to be a, you're going to be allowed a little bit more flexibility after this, right? Particularly if I already know and trust you, like, fine, you want to work at home one day a week, great. Like one day a week isn't going to kill the, you know, functioning of relationship building and all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, a lot of firms are gonna have to think really hard about how much face-to-face interaction is in fact necessary. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to allow it to not occur, just kind of by forcing everybody together five days a week, you know, you have to be very purposeful about it, you know, and I don't know how many companies are going to invest any of the time and energy into saying, okay, well, we need to now have this type, we need to have these types of structured interactions and these type, you know, these types to just to make sure that we're getting people to the comfort level, you know, ultimately, you know, as you know, because I taught your class last week. You know, a lot about social relationships is about access to resources. Yeah. Right? It's about getting things without having to pay for them. Right? It's about getting something from somebody else, a favor, piece of information, and all of that stuff, a lot of that's just random, like, you know, you know you know I know I'm not the answer. It's serendipity. Bryce and he's just right over there. I'll just go ask him. Sure. I'm not going to pick up, I wouldn't pick up the phone if he wasn't there. If I walked by his office and he wasn't there, I just wouldn't ask. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's this whole margin. And again, the question is how valuable. And we're going to learn a lot about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Because you're going to have experiments of companies that try and go entirely online. They're going to say, well, we see, we think we can compete just fine. Uh, entirely online, people living wherever, and we're going to try and attract a quality workforce who is really into working from home or working from anywhere, and they're going to try and compete that way, and they're going to be competing in the same industry against people that are doing a more traditional model, and we'll see who wins, right? And that'll tell us a whole lot about how important these effects are. But, you know, the basic suspicion that drives a lot of me and other urban economists is nothing that I do on Zoom, I didn't do on a conference call in 1997. Sure. Right, I just send a PowerPoint by email, and then I would say, "Move to the next slide." So I can remember being a consultant on phone calls, looking at PowerPoints, and it—I was talking into the air just like I do on Zoom. Now there may work cameras; we weren't looking at each other, so that's slightly different. But honestly, at this point, I feel like whenever I give a presentation, nobody has their camera on, mm-hmm. so it's really just a conference call where I'm presenting information. Yeah,
1: and I mean, somehow that shakes out will be determined, you know on both the supply and the demand side. On the demand side, you know, a client might just say, I'd rather have Bryce cheaper, not have to pay him to be here, not have to pay him to, you know, fly, be in a hotel room, all those billable hours and expenses. Yet at the same time,
0: they're probably going to, you know, maybe having you in the room leads to better outcomes. We we don't really know. And that's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn how much it actually affects outcomes and how much of it, you know, and and what is specifically – and where, right? You know, because yeah. it, it doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? We basically took every possible job that could maybe be done sure, at home and did it, and we shifted it home. And now nobody thinks all of those jobs are going to stay at home. The question is, is what's the margin? You know, where do we actually land in terms yeah. of who's at home and who's not? And, you know, my basic prediction is that all the forces that drove people to cities they're still there. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, drove people to the office. They're still there. All we've really done is give more people a taste so that they'll bargain and say, I'd like to do this more, right? And the question is, is well, where do the bosses come down in terms of how many people can do it and, you know, can they manage it? Because that's, right. really, that's right. the other thing, right? The big costs to you managing know, it. And, you know, look, it's certainly, we know it's possible, right? But it requires you, the manager, to learn a new way of managing people if you're really going to run an organization entirely remotely um, in terms of, well, who are you hiring? How are you onboarding them? How are you building their relationship? Mm-hmm. How, how are you maintaining you, the relationship? How are you thinking about culture, all you these know, things? All these types of things in terms of, you know, if if your contract is purely economic, give me this particular output and I will give you this amount of money. Work from anywhere is fine. sure. But to the extent that you also have any relational contract or any kind of other thing that's part of what you're trying to get done, or your output is hard to observe, right? Well, now I gotta how, how do I show input when you know other than surveillance? And surveillance is the absence of trust. Surveillance is not trust, mm-hmm. right? Most people want to live in a more a relational contract where I don't like the family at work metaphor, but there's something like we're a team. Sure. Right. You know, some
1: camaraderie, there's
0: some form of, you know, there's some form of social exchange here where we're part of a team. And so as, as such, there's expectations that you're going to treat me in a certain way. And in particular, you're going to trust me to do what I'm supposed to do without micromanaging me or doing all that kind of stuff. And I'm going to provide you, you know, work you're going to, you're going to take that risk on me and I'm going to give it to you without requiring that I be micromanaged and sure. all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, the challenge is, is that that's all built on a relation. And if you're not having interactions which promote that relation, how do you get to the point where you have the trust to let people work from home when I can't just basically say, you know, if it, I work from home, but I only have, I'm employed by clients. So it's really easy If I don't deliver them a report, they they can see I didn't do the work, Mm -hmm. right? And But, you know, the rest of it, you know, so but if I'm just a part of a team and, you know, does the boss really know and how much resentment is going to build up from, you know, oh, I think he's out, you know, biking all the time. That's the other part that, you know, I think people haven't fully appreciated. It's also really easy to work from home when there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, you mean that I – can now meet up my friends for a restaurant for lunch and, you know, go to the gym and, you know, all of these things, you know, depending on where you lived, mm-hmm. like, there wasn't much else to do but work at home. Yeah. And, you know, in a post-COVID world, there's going to be an increase in distractions that might also make it harder for people to work. You know, and, and that's, you know, some of this is really just about who you are, right? There's a set of people that actually need to go to the office to yeah, actually Yeah, people have social needs. You know, they need social needs. They also just need constraints. Yeah. They need somebody else to, you know, they need to feel the pressure that somebody's looking at Accountability of and, some kind, yeah. You know, and there's some people that just don't need that. And they're the people who are going to bargain for work from home, or they're the people that are going to join organizations that try and make work from home work exclusively. I just think it's hard to have them in the same in the same environment. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think about it in terms of teaching. It's
1: easy, to t- it's not easy, but like teaching totally in person, pretty straightforward. Teaching totally remote, pretty straightforward. Teaching in a world where I have some students remote, some students in person, that gets tricky. It gets tricky to deliver a top quality product. To each constituency at the same time. And I think the same rules apply if you've got a meeting in a conference room and, you know, John and Tim and Joan are in the meeting and Sally needs to pipe in remotely. Well, that sucks up one of the screens in the conference. It's just like all these constraints. So firms are either going to, I I can see, you you know, you made this point a few moments ago, like managers are going to either throw their hands up in the air and say, it's all this or all that. Or they're going to do a deep study, and I think few companies are going to take on that deep study.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, there'll be, there's, there'll be some. There'll be enough for, you know, your colleagues here and other people in business schools across the country to write, you know... All kinds of papers to write. Thousands of papers on it. And over that time, then, you know, you, you'll be able to teach the next generation of managers, okay, well, here's how to do it, and, you know... But, like, in the intermediate term... You know, it's it's hard. You know, you're gonna have friction about people who don't want to come back after sure. being gone, and yeah. there's gonna be you have to manage that. But like, I don't think we're there in terms of having this. You know, the the technology. Like, people are like, oh, we just didn't know. People weren't familiar with the technology. I do not believe that at all. Like, yeah, we had to learn how to use Zoom specifically. Yeah, it's not that hard. But like. It's just a conference call. Yeah. This is literally just a conference call. That's all Zoom is. It's a conference call where sometimes you look at people, mm-hmm. right? But like, you know, sharing screens, all this kind of stuff has been around for decades. And in the 90s, when I first started thinking about these issues, like, you know, the, this was the thing, right? This was the beginning of it, right? Yeah. The internet is new, you know, and I can remember there are papers, you can go find them on, they call them Lone Eagles. Right. These, you know, tech workers who were buying up mountaintops and random rural places. I and mean, this was the new rural development strategy. Sure. Lone well, like, Eagles. I love it. You know, there's going to be people that are, you know, these, you know, and I can remember my dad built houses. And like, I can remember him building a house in the late 90s, you know, selling a guy a lot on top of a mountain, building a big house. He had a big garage. We had monitors all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he worked in Silicon Valley and he worked in Southern Oregon, you know, his job was in Silicon Valley, but he lived in Southern Oregon. So this has been around Right and yeah, I think the margin will increase. We you know we've kind of kind of got more people like oh I should do this right, so they're going to ask for it. But like, in spite of that technology being there for twenty five years, we still were big cities were thriving. Mm -hmm. So I think you got to assume that the forces that were there pushing people into those situations are. Are real. Yeah. And, you know, and we have fancy, we call them agglomeration economies. Then, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why, you know, people have talked about cities. And just because more people want to work at home and want that flexibility, that's always been there. True. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but you do remember a Dean Giant Guy in Chetta's going away dinner. I sat with you and your wife yeah. and I talked about my vision for creating a separation between part time and full time workers. Mm. It's the same thing. Yeah. Right. Part time and full time don't work well together at home and in person are likely to have the same kind, almost almost purely analogous kinds of frictions in terms of I'm doing more than you think I'm doing. You know, that's the part-time worker and the full-time worker thinking that you're just a slacker who doesn't do anything. And, you know, you're making my life hard because you're not here and what right. I want you to be and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, that's it, that same tension is going to exist. We have not found a solution and that. To solution that solution is a social, you know, and so the, what's the solution to me is to say, well, look, there's there's definitely going to be real talented people who don't want to work in an office anymore, right? Let me start a firm that doesn't need it. But you know what I have to do if I want to do that? I have to be the one who's investing in the research and the experimentation and the consultants who are going to try and help me figure out how do I actually make this work? Yeah. How often do I need to force people to be in a room together? How you know How do we create relationships and social networks that are, you know, are an important part of getting work done or am I just hiring a bunch of automatons and everybody is just kind of in their own little silo doing their own thing. But that's not usually most knowledge work that, you know, mostly at home work that people are doing is at least in part team-based, you know, you have to be able to work with somebody else and, you know, maybe I can get it commodified so that it's like you do this and then you hand it to that person and then, you know, and they don't actually need to know each other that well, mm-hmm. but you know, my expectation is that now you're going to have at least a small team. And so you're going to have to figure out how to keep that team functioning if somebody's in Missoula, somebody else is in San Diego, and somebody else is in Florida. yeah, And, you know, that creates a lot of opportunity. Yeah, the other thing is worth pointing out is it also creates a lot of risk. Right? So if you're in Missoula, professionals make a lot less, 25% less um, right. in Missoula. Mm-hmm. And if we really get to a world where all of the professionals in Missoula can get jobs in Seattle, you know, national wages as opposed to Missoula wages. If I'm a Missoula company, that scares me to death. Although we've seen that work in the other
1: direction, like Facebook is paying employees who don't live in Silicon Valley lower wages.
0: That won't last. Okay. You know, I mean, I again, mean, there's competition effects. We'll again, see. The competition will. You know, I mean, the, you know, it's, it's you know, I you, get, you pay people based on what they're doing, and you know. Uh, I, I gave an interview to somebody about this, and I'm not remembering all the little points I made. But like, you know, the reality is, is what you're going to see if, if it really does work, right? If there really are professions that are, we just hire people from anywhere, we bring them on board, sure. it works. You're just going to have a global or national wage or regional, whatever the the, the scale of how often you have to interact is. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know that commute that sets you it. You know, you're just going to have a wage that's going to be for that occupation uh, in that region. You know, so. That might not be just what people were getting paid in Seattle, so that you might get lower wages. But uh, but you yeah, know you'll see a kind of an occupation region specific wage, and you know the challenge is, is if you're a place that pays less than that, and you need to pay less than that because that's what you can charge your for your product, uh, you're going to have a real problem. You're going to have a hard time finding talent. Yeah.
1: Well, I didn't have a hard time finding talent today, Bryce. Thanks for coming in. This was awesome.
0: We're here in studio.
1: In studio. The magic is happening and uh, another incentives and instincts in the books. And hopefully this will be the first of many more uh, in-studio sessions. Bryce, thanks. thanks for coming in today.
0: No COVID backsliding. Let's just keep going forward.
1: Indeed. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift of UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hanson. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business, with additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors and Drum Coffee. AJ Williams is our producer, VTO Jeff Amet and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends about it. Thanks a lot. See you next time.